a science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week, in honor of Labor Day, we're presenting stories about the other kind of labor. The kind where, ideally, you end up with a baby at the end. More specifically, we're going to delve into the labor required to get to that moment. Our first story today is from Chris Wade. It was recorded in April 2019 at Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was hurdles. I was in the room all alone the lights were dim the door was locked and my seat was reclined all the way back i had a stack of porno magazines to my right and porno dvds to my left and the best part about it is my wife was actually giving me permission this time you see we met when we were 21 years old at a new year's eve house party Um, i walked in i saw her she saw me i made a beeline across the room and asked her to dance And without any hesitation, she told me no. (laughs) After convincing her that she was the only person in there shorter than me, she agreed to one dance. But I had a girlfriend at the time, so we settled for becoming best friends and spent the next two decades in this vicious cycle of one person being in a relationship while the other one was single. And then finally, the stars aligned, we started dating, and we got married. So we were eager to have our first child. But we were in our 40s, and it wasn't happening in a natural way, so we decided to pursue in vitro fertilization. One of the first things they requested was a semen sample from me, and that's how I found myself in the room. (laughs) Two weeks later, a few weeks later, they called me up to come in for a second sample. I remember getting up that morning. I even dabbed on a little cologne. And when I got there, this time, they gave me a sign that said, do not enter, and said, put it on the door right down the hall. But when I went in, the room was different this time. There were no porno magazines or DVDs, no recliner. There was a sink, a urinal, and a toilet. It was a restroom. Now, I'd worked under these conditions before. (laughs) But I kind of missed the ambiance of the room. few more weeks go by, they call me up for a third sample. They said, this time, just do it at home and bring it in within two hours. So my wife sent me down to the basement because apparently that's where we collect semen samples in my house. (laughs) And I wasn't upset because I worked under these conditions before. (laughs) But I couldn't help think about all those kids I probably left in those balled up napkins beside my bed when I was 13 (laughs) and 25. Okay, in 40. (laughs) I started sharing my seminal challenges with probably more people than I should have. Like my physical therapist. She insisted I meet her Uncle Jesse. Now, Uncle Jesse was from Jamaica. He lived in the U.S. He had a rack of kids, and he made porno movies starring himself. (laughs) He insisted that I drink Irish mosh. 
Now, Irish Marsh is this algae seaweed that he had blended into a smoothie beverage and sold for $10 a bottle, two for 15. I shared it at church, and one of the Deacon Jones pulled me to the side one day and said, I need to try his Chinese extract. And he claimed it was made up of these Chinese herbs and minerals that had helped with fertility for centuries. And he sold it for $10 a bottle, <laughs> two for 15. It had this black motor oil consistency color. And I remember when I took my first sip, the, my, my thought was maybe we can adopt or, or start spending more time with our nieces and nephews. But I was committed. That's how I met Dr. Wu. Now, Dr. Wu was the brother of the cashier that sold the Chinese herbs and minerals to Deacon Jones. He did acupuncture, and he said if my wife had an acupuncture treatment, that would help with our fertility. But my wife is terrified of needles, but I convinced her to just try one treatment, made an appointment, we went to his office, which turned out to be a house over in Northwest, and he took us in the treatment room, which looked like a lot like a living room to me. And that's where I watched my wife go through what appeared to be the most painful acupuncture treatment ever. At one point, he plugged something in and started sending these electric shocks through the needles, and she was twitching and jumping. And it, she was like she was in so much pain, I couldn't take it anymore, so I looked away. <laughs> and that's when I noticed there was no degree on the wall. Like, not even like a certificate. Where's your lab coat? Who are these people out here waiting to get their taxes done? <laughs> so realizing this was all my fault, I leaned in, I grabbed her hand, and I whispered in her ear, I love you. And I remember she turned and looked at me with these tears streaming down her face, and she said, I'm gonna fuck you up. <laughs> Then there was Sergeant Rowe. Sergeant Rowe was prime military. She was a former bodybuilder. She was a physical fitness instructor for the police department. And she was five foot tall and always stood at parade rest. She said, you need to get sticky tea. I'm like, look, I'm already drinking this uh, Chinese motor oil and this seaweed. She's like, no, you need to get sticky tea for your wife. I'm like, what's sticky tea? Sticky tea was this raspberry organic tea that she claimed would Line my uterus, line my wife's uterus, and the egg would get there and stick and stay the whole time. <laughs> but the only problem was the one store that sold it was in not the safest neighborhood in D.C. But she insisted, you need to get over there by five and get some of that sticky tea. So I asked her, did it close at five? No, you need to get in and out of that neighborhood before the sun goes down. <laughs> so I went and picked up two boxes of sticky tea, and they sold them $10 a box, two for 20 Apparently, they weren't doing the two for 15 thing in that neighborhood. In the end, we had 14 follicles. And my wife and I were getting excited, and then we learned that 99% of those disintegrate without ever producing an egg. But we ended up with three eggs. One that wasn't viable, one that didn't fertilize, but one that did. However, given our age at the time, we had a less than 1% chance of the in vitro being a success. Five months into the pregnancy, we went to a concert similar to this. My wife went to the restroom, and when she returned, she whispered that she was showing symptoms that looked like she was miscarrying. 
I raced to the emergency room and all that kept playing through my mind was the doctor telling us that our chances of having a kid were slim to none. They hooked her up to a sonogram and all we saw were these little legs just kicking away. Sticky tea. <laughs> November that year, we had our son. <laughs> a few years later, we decided to try in vitro again, but currently they had an age cut off for my healthcare provider. So to console ourselves, we went to a comedy show up in Philly and saw five of the most hilarious comedians ever. And then we went back to the hotel and had that bomb hotel sex. <laughs> and nine months later, we had my daughter. They say it takes a village to raise a child, and I'm a firm believer of that, but sometimes it takes a village to have one, too. Thank you. That was Chris Wade. Chris is a native Washingtonian and a retired member of the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. He is a certified healthcare protection administrator and currently works in healthcare security. He's a graduate of the Johns Hopkins University Police Executive Leadership Program, is a certified mental health first aid instructor, and a certified CPI nonviolent crisis intervention instructor. He is married to his best friend and simply adores his children. Our next story today is from Sarah Sweet. It was recorded in April 2019 at the Oberon Theater in Boston. The theme that night was Square One. I am sitting in the waiting room of the fertility doctor's office, and all the magazines in here are about babies or mothers or breastfeeding. And I'm just looking for something to take my mind off pregnancy because I am not pregnant. Like just an Us magazine or even a Golf Digest. There is a poster on the wall of a family and their doctor, and it says, Making Families Together. This is kind of creepy, but also a pretty accurate depiction of what is going on here. After a year of no luck trying the natural way, my husband and I have turned to IUI, intrauterine insemination. You know, the turkey baster, where they basically take the sperm and put it right into your uterus, kind of cutting out the whole trip so it can just get to the egg fast. It's like the sperm is taking an Uber or a Lyft instead of walking those last few blocks. And I am excited about this. It's the easy part. It's all the stuff beforehand that's hard. Like the injections. I have to give myself shots of a drug that's supposed to stimulate my ovulation. I am afraid of needles. Not really afraid, it's more like a full-blown phobia. Like, the mere thought of a needle renders me, like, absolutely terrified. And so my husband has to give me these injections. He can barely get the needle to puncture the skin of my tummy pooch because I am screaming so loud and he is laughing so hard. <laughs> but he's really got the short end of the stick because not only does he have to give me the injections, he has to make the sample. 
His first attempt at doing this at the doctor's office is hampered by some fussy Venetian blinds and what he calls less than inspirational materials. <laughs> so we are sent home so he can do this where he's more comfortable. And he does, but then we have to rush back to the doctor's office, and of course we have to go on Storo Drive. And this is a test to both our marriage and my skills as a Boston driver. We do make it there on time, but unfortunately our first attempt at IUI is a failure. So we try a second time, and we do everything right, no mistakes, and it doesn't work. Our doctor tells us, you know, IUI does help increase the chance that you'll get pregnant, but there are no guarantees. And I'm frustrated, you know, because I'm all in. I am getting books out from the library. I am reading WebMD all day long. And I am getting braver at needles. But nothing we're doing seems to have an effect. Plus, the pressure is on because... Both of my sisters and my sister-in-law are all pregnant. And everyone is like, it's going to be so awesome that we'll all be pregnant together. And this is really playing upon my deepest fear, which is to be left out. And it's definitely starting to seem like I am going to be left out of this very cool girl gang. This tribe of all my female relations going through what most people call a miracle without me. By the time we get to our third IUI, the last the insurance will pay for, it's nearly Christmas time. And I know the holidays are going to be rough anyway because we are going to my in-laws where we will be meeting our new nephew for the first time, also while waiting to see if this last IUI worked. Not to jinx it, but my period is three days late by the time we sit down for dinner on Christmas Eve, and so I get a little excited. After dinner, I allow myself to think a few cute thoughts as I put on my pajamas, like the nickname Peanut, or naming a baby after my dad, whether it's a boy or a girl. But then, as if on cue from Judy Bloom, I get a huge and horrible period, like the worst of all times. I am definitely not pregnant. Downstairs, there is a ruckus. It's the grandparents. They're ooing and aahing, fawning. At long last, my brother-in-law and his wife have arrived with their brand new baby boy, just 12 days old. I take one of those big, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, maxi pads. Put it in my underpants. Take the deepest breath in the history of breathing and go downstairs to meet him. Everyone is like practically turning inside out with all the firstness and the cuteness and the Christmasness. I am actually turning inside out because this period is more like a light hemorrhage. I have a headache the size of a double boiler and can only stare blankly at this baby who looks like a photocopy of my husband from when he was born. I am not happy. I am jealous. And this makes me feel sad. 
standing downstairs, staring at this baby, I'm trying to not feel jealous. I'm trying to feel Christmassy, but I can't. No thanks, I say, when the baby is thrust in my direction to hold. This family is big on family, and it's a bitter pill to swallow that it seems like we're not able to contribute to the fold. My husband and I survive the remainder of this visit by crying in secret and drinking a lot. But we decide we're going to try a fourth time out of pocket, and we meet with the fertility doctor just after New Year's. And I'm sitting with her in the office. She's waiting for me to toss out a couple of dates that might be good to schedule the procedure when she tells me she's got my latest blood work and that my FSH level, follicle-stimulating hormone, is at 29. 29 is not good. 29 is high, like really high. And I mean, I'm not an expert, but I have learned during this process that the ideal FSH level for someone trying to get pregnant is between 3 and 15. I am crestfallen, but also a little bit angry. Like, I have been trying so hard. Can't any of my good hard work count for something? The answer is no, because that's not how biology works. Biology doesn't give a shit how bad you want a baby or how many books you've read or how many death-defying trips you've made on Storo Drive. <laughs> it is what it is, and an FSH level of 29 is a no-go. But I ask her anyway, say, isn't this a little bit high? I mean, would it be crazy to try this again? I mean... Would it be irresponsible? Isn't 29 in the no-go range? Yes, she says, but there's always hope. And I'm like, um, I've used up all of my hope. Hope is no friend of science, and hope is certainly not enough. I tell her, I think we're going to pass on this next attempt. She gives me a pamphlet on adoption as I leave her office. Spring comes around, and I have yet to hold the baby. I just can't. I feel like a jerk, but I'm just too sad. Me and my husband are both so depressed. Me especially, because now my failure has a name. Premature menopause. Right after we find this wonderful news out, my brother-in-law gives us a call to sort of check in and see if there's anything that we need. And we tell him, you know, we just need time. Like, we can't have a baby, I'm having menopause at 40, and everyone in our family has children. Like, we are up to our seventh niece and nephew now. We just need a minute. And he's like, absolutely. But then like four weeks later, we're all gathered together again, and my brother-in-law tells me and my husband that he is disappointed that we haven't held his baby, that he is annoyed and sad because he thought we were going to be the cool aunt and uncle. Now, I know having a baby makes you crazy, or so I have heard, but my brother-in-law proves this tenfold when he looks at me and says, you know, you should really just hold the baby. It'll make you feel better. Babies make everything 
better. I look at him like Dirty Harry. Is he kidding? Are you kidding, I say? Because I know if I hold that baby, my heart will break into a million shitty pieces. I know if I do anything as dangerous as cradle him or smell his little head, I'll be done for, broken-hearted for eternity. I leave the room. We don't talk about holding the baby again. Time goes on, and this baby morphs into a toddler, and my husband and I start going to less and less family events. I mean, we still do the top-tier stuff like Christmas and retirement parties. But as my nephew grows, so does the wall that my husband and I are building around ourselves. Loving him just feels too impossible. The toddler is now a little guy. He's like seven. And I have held him briefly on my lap since that conversation but mainly we just high-five and hug goodbye. And even this, this most basic smidgen of connection, has taken time, a lot of time. As mysterious and fickle as the reproductive system is, so too is the heart. But my heart, unlike my eggs, I think might be a better listener and there's a chance that I can become the cool aunt. I mean, there are no guarantees, but there's always hope. Thank you. That was Sarah Sweet. Sarah is a writer and storyteller from Boston. She's a Moth Grand Slam champion and has been a featured teller with Fugitive Stories, Now Hear This, Listen Up Storytelling, Life is Good, and The Moth Main Stage. Sarah and her husband are aunt and uncle to eight nieces and nephews. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Colliders led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaringholm, Shane Hanlon, Catherine Wu, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is edited by Senior Podcast Editor Zoe Saunders, with help from editors Jen Chin and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Oberon and Beer Baron for hosting these shows and to Chris and Sarah for sharing their struggles with us and to everyone out there struggling with infertility right now. Please don't let anyone electric jockey with needles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>